go ahead and take a seat. Uh, my name is Rob Collis, and I'm on our pastoral team. Um, and it's, it's a joy to be with you here today as this keeps happening. We're, Dan and I were just joking about my sound. Um, for some reason, like, we do a sound check before anyone ever arrives, and my sound's fine. And then I get up on stage, and my, my sound's just all over the place. Thank you, Dan, for sorting that out. Um, before we get started, I want to quickly acknowledge uh, two weeks ago I preached a sermon about money and giving, uh, and a number of you have shared some really kind feedback with me, so thank you for that. Uh, and Phil and I have also received some really thoughtful feedback about that sermon too, uh, and I want you to know that we, we've, we've heard that, we've been listening, um, and we've really appreciated everything that you, you've shared with us. Um, my, my one sermon from two weeks ago was not the final word about giving and what the Bible has to say about giving. Um, if anything, it's probably more like a middle word to help us have the conversation about how do we think about giving as Christians. Um, and so hopefully that sermon is something which will help spur us on to have more conversations together. Uh, that was my hope, and I think that's beginning to happen. Uh, if you'd like to talk more about giving, uh, Phil and I would love to, to meet with you and just make space to, to chat about that. Um, and as a community, I, I hope together this can be a conversation that we keep on having together, because I think it's an important one. Um, I'm not talking about money today, though. You can all breathe a sigh of relief. Instead, I'm talking about that passage we just heard Shannon read for us, and after which we all said, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God? Question mark. Um, today, I'm going to be talking about communion. When I was growing up in England, uh, I went to a Church of England school. And, and so that, what that meant is that we were connected to a local church, um, which in my case, it was literally right beside my school. And every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we would walk over to the church for a communion service. And it was always a very formal occasion. It was a very traditional service. And as an eight-year-old, I, I didn't really understand it. Between the, the hymns and the bells and the incense, though, I, I would see people going forward for communion. And, and to me, it just seemed like these people were going forward for a little snack during the service. And I was always confused why the older people were able to go forward, but I wasn't allowed to go forward to get the snack. And then later on, I became one of the, the bigger, older students, and I was allowed to go down to the front to get the little wafer to put into the cup, and, and occasionally I'd cross myself, because that's what I saw people doing all around me. But I never really understood why we did any of it. It, it seemed like a religious ritual you just did for the sake of doing a religious ritual. The Bible's quite clear, though, that communion isn't something we should just do for the sake of it. In communion, we are embracing and proclaiming the heart of our faith. Communion is often viewed as the, uh, the pinnacle of our worship. It's the climax we've been building to during our whole worship service. And if you've been following along with us over the last number of weeks, you'll know that we've been tracing and exploring how these different parts of our worship service prepare and lead us in worship as we come to encounter the presence of God together and to offer ourselves to him. And in doing that, we find that we're nourished by him. So today, I want to turn our attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I want to explore the question, why and how do we prepare for communion? Why and how do we prepare for communion? And as we go through this, this passage, we'll see that it breaks into three parts. There's a rebuke, there's a return, and there's a realignment. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to, to open it up or turn it on so that your face is illumined by the glow of a screen. Uh, and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning of verse 17, and everything will also be on the screen behind me. Paul writes, In the following directives, I have no praise for you. 
for your meetings do more harm than good. I'm just going to pause there quickly. Uh, did anyone watch the movie Spirited last year? Anyone else? Yeah. Uh, it was an adaptation of A Christmas Carol with Ryan Reynolds and Will Ferrell, uh, which tells you everything you need to know already. <laughs> and there's this, this moment in the movie where they, they almost sort of get transported back in time to, to Victorian England period. And in this moment, they, they learn that saying good afternoon was meant to be this sort of old school insult. And so because it's Ryan Reynolds and, and Will Ferrell, it turns into a musical. And, and all of a sudden, they start offending everyone around them, saying, good afternoon. And I, I had to fact check this. Um, that was not actually an insult in Victorian England. They just made it up for the movie, and it's a really comedic moment. But when Paul says, I have no praise for you, it's actually a slap in the face. He's saying, this thing, this next thing I want to talk about with you, I can't approve of what you're doing. In fact, I most strongly object to the practices you have with each other. What you're doing is just straight up wrong. Because when these Corinthian Christians were gathering together for their church meetings, he said that their meetings did more harm than good. He's coming in with this hot rebuke saying, good afternoon, sir. What were the Corinthians doing so wrong? And in verse 18, he goes on to say, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So they had these divisions and differences among themselves. So what? Right? I mean, in our church right now, we've got some differences between us. Many of us hold different political ideas, right? If you didn't know that, the person somewhere else in this room, there's someone who has a very different political idea about how the world should operate than you do. Sorry to burst your bubble. Uh, we also come from different nationalities and ethnicities, right? We might hold to some differing views on, on morality and, and even maybe some different aspects of theology. Why is Paul rebuking them for having some differences? And the thing is, Paul's not against differences per se. Elsewhere in his writings, he, he celebrates diversity in the church. He, he celebrates how Christians can be united together in Christ with our differences. But what he's calling out in Corinth was a different kind of division and difference. And actually, I, I think the language we use it, it, here in our translation is a bit weak. We could better translate this as, I hear you are schismatic among yourselves when you gather as a church. And hearing that doesn't surprise me. I think I actually believe it. They weren't just agreeing to disagree on some different topics or points of view. They weren't expressing a healthy diversity. They were schismatic. They were excluding each other from their gatherings. And then Paul adds, no doubt there have to be differences among you. And the word he uses here is, is better understood as, as dissension. It's a word Paul only ever uses in his writings in, in a negative way. It has this connotation of, of dissension, of conflict, and it's based, a conflict based off of false teachings. It's false teachings that actively threaten the church's unity. And actually elsewhere in, in Galatians, he uses this word in a list of vices, and he says it's on the same level as witchcraft and adultery. So Paul's coming out in full force, and it, he's doing it because the church in Corinth was in deep trouble. They were at war with themselves. 
Competing false teachings had seeped into their midst and were splitting them apart in an effort to try and prove whose teachings and beliefs were right. And they were trying to demonstrate that they each had the truth by not associating with each other. Bible scholars suggest that part of this dissension in Corinth arose from a cultural belief and practice around social classes and wealth. And they, they, they suggest that the wealthier members of the church would retreat to a, a private dining room to take communion. And when they did that, they would gorge themselves in a feast with fine wine and, and food. And then they'd leave everyone else outside to eat at a later time in an open courtyard where they would eat the worst of the food, the worst of the bread, drink the cheapest of the wine. And often they would run out. They'd run out, there wouldn't be enough for people in their midst who were poor. And whatever it was they were doing, Paul's looking at them and he's saying, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. And in verse 20, he says, whenever you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. And then in verse 22, he says, do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Paul sees something deeply amiss in what they're doing. They're doing more harm than good when they gathered together. And it, it seems like they were humiliating and, and shaming other Christians in their own midst. The, the Bible scholar Gordon Fee explains, the Corinthian problem was not in their failure to gather, but their failure to truly be God's new people when they gathered. Their failure was in, in not being God's new people when they gathered. They were holding on to beliefs about the world and how their culture and society operated. And those beliefs were at odds with what it meant to live together as Christians. And now, as a church, St. Peter's Father said, I, I don't think we're too at risk for dividing over our social status when we come to communion. I, I don't think that's what's pressing for us. I don't think we're very likely to schism. But I think there's always going to be a risk for Christians throughout history and today where we risk failing to live as new people of God and Christ together. And I want to quickly just flag two areas where I think that might be pressing for us. Uh, first, I think we might need to be careful about our society's emphasis with individualism. Because our belief in individualism can isolate us from others. And we can get it into our heads that we can worship and follow Jesus completely on our own. But the Bible talks way too much about community and doing things with one another in order to follow Jesus together. And we can't come to the Lord's table without coming with the rest of the church. And there's no such thing as a church of one. So I think individualism can be a risk to living as the new people of God. And a second one I want to flag, and this is very specific to, to us at St. Peter's Fireside right now, is as our church is in a season of looking for a new lead pastor, that there could become a risk for us that either our process of finding a new lead pastor or the final decision that gets made could cause division in our church. And I hope that doesn't happen. I really hope that doesn't happen. I don't think it needs to happen. I don't think it should cause division. And actually, I think it's a pretty simple issue for us to avoid and to, to not have to worry about. I think we can avoid that kind of division by, by praying and praying together. Praying for our leadership team and our search committee praying for whoever it is God is preparing to come and have us lead our church. And praying for our church too, for each of us, that we would continue to walk towards Christ together and follow in his ways.
The Corinthians were, were failing to be God's new people when they gathered. And Paul begins discussing why and how we should come to communion by rebuking the Corinthians. He gave them a resounding, good afternoon, sir. And he called them out for scorning the church of God and failing to live as the new people of God in Christ. But he doesn't just rebuke them and leave them hanging. No, he wants them to return to the heart of why we gather, to return to the heart of what communion is all about. He wants them to remember what communion is. And so he rebukes them to return them to the heart. And in verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He's bringing them back to the basics, to what he had once already taught them. This is what they're already supposed to know. And I, I had a lot of practice and experience running sound over the last number of years, um, running sound, running video, especially in church settings. And I remember that I had been running sound for about eight years when um, I was at a church where they had a, a guy come in to start working with me named Dave. And we, we called him Magic Dave. Um, and Dave was a professional sound engineer. This is what he did for a living. And he would go on tour with bands and, and he'd run sound for their concerts and venues big and small. And Dave, he knew what he was doing. And he wanted to share that knowledge and that expertise with, with us at this church I was at. And, and for him, it always came back to this one thing. He'd always say, it's all about gain. It's all about gain. And when he said that, what he meant was that we always needed to make sure we had the right amount of volume coming into the sound system from every instrument and from every microphone. We had to make sure that we had the right level coming in. And whenever he would train us or whenever he would help us troubleshoot a mix, he'd always bring us back to the basics. Because things can get complicated and flashy and fancy. But if we start making our focus all the complicated little details and we forget about the gain, then it doesn't matter what we do. Because the mix is going to be in trouble and we're going to be fighting it all along the way. Paul's telling the Corinthians, it's all about gain. He starts in verse 23 by saying, the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed. When he says Lord Jesus, Lord isn't the first name, or it's not a nickname either. He's saying Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the King. Our Lord and King, God himself, the creator and sustainer of all things, Jesus. Before he even gets to communion, before he gets to the meal, He's saying that we need to remember whose communion and whose meal this is. It's Jesus' meal. He is the one who instituted this for us. And he instituted this meal on the night that he was betrayed. The night that would result in him dying on a cross. This isn't some ritual that started once upon a time. This meal was established in a specific moment. A specific moment by Jesus in history. And it shows us that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. On that night, Jesus took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus takes, he blesses, he breaks, and he gives the bread to his disciples. And when he gives it to them, he indicates this isn't just bread anymore. In some way, it's now his body, and it's for you. 
it's for me. And somehow, I don't fully understand how, but somehow he's present with us in this bread. He's giving us his presence and saying, this is for you. He's giving you his very presence. And it's so much more than just a little snack in the middle of a service. It's the presence of Jesus in your life. This is for you. And this goes even deeper than just simply saying that Jesus is coming to be with you. In giving you his presence, Jesus is doing something for you. Gordon Fee points out that Paul would have understood this to to mean that Jesus is doing something for us, specifically. Because whenever Paul uses this expression of Jesus doing something for you, for us, this turn of phrase is always in reference to Jesus expressing or making his his atonement for sin or his substitution for sins. So he only ever says or uses this phrase in the context of how Jesus' death is on our behalf, how Jesus' death is in our place. And this is significant because it means that this is Jesus' body, which is for you. His presence is given to you, and it's because he's giving himself for you. He's going to the cross on your behalf to take the penalty of your sins, to take the penalty of my sins upon himself. That's what he means when he says, this is for you. This is in your place. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. He takes, blesses, and he gives the cup to his disciples. And when he gives it to them, he says that this isn't just wine anymore. Somehow, this is now the new covenant in his blood. This this is the promise of God to us, that we are his and he is ours that we will be his people, and he will now be our God. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. When we come to this table, when we take communion, we do this in remembrance of Jesus. And, and memory is a very cognitive thing for us, isn't it? Right? Like in, in our culture, when we think about memory, memory tends to be a mental activity. Most often when we talk about remembering something, we mean remembering information of some kind. Like, I remember that Einstein postulated that E equals MC squared. And I remember that I used to study physics, and I used to understand what that meant and why it mattered. (laughs) And now I have to go to Wikipedia to figure that out. But while remembrance tends to carry the sense of mental activity for us today, that wasn't the full scope of what it means in the Bible. Biblical scholars explain that when the Bible talks about remembering, very often it's that mental activity coupled with an actual embodied activity, and they go together. Remembering takes on an embodied and tangible expression. And so if we're remembering how Jesus died for our sins and has given us a new covenant in his blood, and if we're receiving the very presence of Jesus in some way through this communion, and now we belong to the people of God, then it follows that something about this embodied form of remembering is going to lead us to live and behave as though God is present with us in the world right now. And that everyone who comes by faith to receive and partake of this meal belongs to Jesus. They're saying, I belong to Jesus when they come. And just to bring this back to the Corinthians quickly and and their, their mess that they were in, 
as I've been sitting with this passage, I've been struck by how the, the, the actual ways that they interacted with each other when they gathered and, and the desire to maintain and uphold their, their cultural norms about who to interact with and how to go about dealing with one another and how, how that resulted in, in that schism, that d- d- dissension. It reveals that there was a failure to grasp and live as the new people of God in Christ because they were not truly remembering Jesus when they came to communion. Something was off. And I'm sure they were remembering something about Jesus when they met. I hope they were. But whatever it was they were remembering or what they were saying, they didn't allow that to to come reach them. They didn't allow or permit the extent of Jesus' love and sacrifice on the cross to, to move them in a way that would open their hearts and their tables to the people of God around them. And so the primary source of, of their unity was, was not loving Jesus. It wasn't his sacrifice for them on the cross. And it wasn't his forgiveness of their sins. Rather, the source of their unity were these schismatic teachings that they were holding on to by their false prophets. So the Corinthians had lost touch of the basics. They were fiddling around with all those other toys and tricks, but they'd forgotten all, it's all about game. Their mix had run away from them, and they were fighting with themselves to feel like they could be in control. And Paul's bringing them back to the basics. He's having them return to the heart of communion. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, he says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So there's a rebuke, and then there's a return. And then finally, there's a realignment. Paul turns now to the question of how do we come to the table? And in verse 27, he says, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. And this is why there was a question mark earlier when we said, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wait, what? If we take communion in an unworthy manner, we will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That feels like a lot of pressure, right? If we don't do this communion thing right in in this worthy way, then we're sinning against God. And then Paul goes on to say, because that wasn't enough apparently, he says, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So this is like worthy, unworthy manner, which leads to the guilt of sinning against the Lord with examining and discerning the body of Christ, or otherwise we risk drinking judgment upon ourselves. It feels like the tone of this passage has just changed from here all the way over here, right? This language just got really intense. But before our brains start racing, and we find ourselves getting caught up in, in, in the language and all those details, can we just take a step back? Let's take a step back and return to the basics again. As Magic Dave would have said to me, yes, it, it's, it's sounding complicated right now, but it's still all about game. The, the pastor, Tim Keller, has said, the gospel, the, the, the good news of Jesus, the entire message of our faith, it comes down to this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we have ever dared to hope. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves 
than we have ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. Paul said, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This whole meal is about Jesus dying on the cross. And Jesus died on the cross to forgive you your sins. On the cross, he bore the weight of your sins upon himself, bore the weight of my sins upon himself because we are more sinful and flawed than we ever wanted to admit. And we can't clean ourselves up on our own. But he can. He can and he has. And as Phil shared last week in his sermon, if we confess our sins to him, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us. And he frees us from our sins so that we can walk in the light and experience the presence of God. Here, now, and for all of eternity. When Paul warns us about coming to the table in an unworthy manner, when he says that we need to examine ourselves to discern the body of Christ, he isn't trying to get us to do some big, deep, navel-gazing, self-introspection thing to, to root out everything we've ever done wrong. And he isn't telling us to go get our act together so that we can no longer be sinners when we come to this table, because we can't do that on our own. We can't clean ourselves up. We need Jesus to do that for us. And if we're discerning rightly, then actually it means that we know that we are unworthy to come in and of ourselves. We can't come to this table in our own right. We can't come into the presence of God by our own means. We can only come to Jesus' table because he's made a way for us by his cross. And I really love that we now say the prayer of humble access in our service. Before we come to communion together as a church, we pray, we do not presume to come to this, your table, O most merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your abundant and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord, whose character is always to have mercy. We're acknowledging that on our own, we're sinful. And we can only come to communion and experience the grace and love of God because of his abundant and great mercies. The abundant and great mercies which he demonstrated for us once and for all upon the cross. And we're not expecting or supposing that we can come to this table because of what we've done. Instead, we're presuming upon the mercy of God and we're trusting in his goodness and love alone. Because we are confident that he is merciful. And in that confidence, we then go on to say, Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his body, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him, and he in us. Amen. And when we pray this prayer, we're holding a sober awareness of our sin and sinfulness and, and our need for our Savior. But we're not groveling in our own sin. We're not groveling there. We are actively hoping and trusting and depending upon forgiveness, depending upon mercy and trusting in his grace. And we are asking boldly and trusting that God will come and meet us as we eat this bread and drink this cup. How do we come to communion?
How do we prepare ourselves? Well, we come to communion by the realignment of our hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by remembering and proclaiming that Jesus died to forgive us our sins and to raise us to fullness of life in him. This is the heart of what we believe. And we proclaim it whenever we come to take communion together. And as we come together to live as the new people of God in Christ Jesus, this is what we proclaim to the whole world around us too. And when we come and do that together, we get so much more than just a snack during a service. We get to feast on Christ. And somehow the bread and the wine become more than just bread and wine. By faith, we get to encounter the presence of Jesus here and now. As our sinful bodies are made clean by his body, and our souls are washed through his most precious blood. And we can evermore dwell in him, and he in us. So let's pray.